0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communication. I'm your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Aaron Tugendhaft, author of the book, The Idols of Isis. Aaron, so happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Marcy.
1: So, to start, I would like, uh, as our listeners would, I'm sure, to know a little bit more about your educational background and your professional background and what you're what you're currently up to,
0: sure. So, my educational background is really a mix. And one of the exciting things about this book project was that I finally found a way for all the different parts to somehow come together. I know somewhat miraculous, actually. so, Back in college, I was an art history major, and that comes into the book. Uh, I also spent some time studying the history of philosophy and, especially, political philosophy, history of political thought. And I eventually got my PhD in Assyriology, in ancient Near Eastern studies. And so I have worked a lot on the ancient Near East, the and also I've been interested in the history of the discipline um, in the study of, of the ancient Near East since the 19th century. And so all of those things sort of come together in the book.
1: That's great. So you definitely have this interdisciplinary background that comes together beautifully. And I think that your book really speaks to that, which is great. Um, so this, to start off, you really, this is very personal to you. So perhaps uh let's start there. And what inspired you to write this book specifically? Sure, so the personal part of the book
0: is uh the fact that the book though it really moves between a lot of material um from antiquity all the way up to today uh the contemporary social media and such um All three of the chapters do kind of focus on Iraq and the whole book is inspired or was um, prompted by an event that took place in Iraq and this destruction in the Mosul Museum in Iraq. And for me that had a personal element because uh, I'm Iraqi on my mother's side. My grandfather was from Baghdad and belonged to the Jewish community um, in Iraq that had been there presumably since antiquity. Uh, and so, I didn't really know him all that well. He died when I was very young, and so this was a way for me to reconnect with that part of my own heritage uh, in in certain ways. Um,
1: That's great. And in terms of what the academic side of it mm-hmm. you you talk about that kind of you know infamous video that was published where ISIS was destroying uh, these really ancient symbols. So you, you're really, a lot of the, I think the, throughout your book, you really talk about iconoclasm and idolatry. So can you talk about how that particular video, as, as, you, as you mentioned your prologue and your prologue, how did that really sit with you? On a personal level, on an academic level, that really propelled you to say, hey, I, I really got to write about this.
0: Right. So when I saw the video for the first time, I saw it, I think, like many people on social media, on Facebook. And because of this background that I have in ancient Near Eastern studies, I had, you know, many of my colleagues had posted it. So I didn't only see it once, I saw it repeatedly on my feed. And I watched it and the very early on, I noticed a similarity, which I found rather uncanny between one scene that has often been reproduced of three men with sledgehammers smashing the sculpture of a king in the museum in Mosul. Um, And it's this resemblance that it has to a relief sculpture from the ancient Assyrian palace uh, of Sargon, the second Khorsobat, which um, is only about 25 kilometers away from Mosul. Um, But of course, this this image was made 2,500 years earlier um, than the video. And that palace relief also shows three men with sledgehammers smashing the sculpture of a king. And, you know, that image is... Decently known among experts in ancient Eurasian studies, I uh, knew about it and it came immediately to my mind because I had in the past curated an exhibition uh, on idolatry called Idol Anxiety and then co edited a volume of essays on the same topic with the same title Idol Anxiety. And when I was looking for an image to put on the cover of that book, I decided on this. Uh, relief from ancient Assyria. So I was very familiar with the relief, though actually in um, in the book Idle Anxiety, though um, I have an introduction there where I talk quite a bit about um, the ancient Near East, I don't actually talk about that image at all. It's just literally was just chosen for the cover. And so here was an opportunity to actually make good on actually thinking about what that image is all about and thinking about... The relationship between that image and the ISIS video um, image, and more generally, right, about the nature of iconoclasm, the politics of iconoclasm, and importantly, and this is a real uh, important feature of the book, that not only the destruction of images, but the making of images of that destruction, and how iconoclasm itself is a form of image making and both and that's the case both with respect to the palace relief and with the case uh with respect to the video by Isis and so the that's that's a theme that runs throughout the book
1: yeah and you split up this book in because it's it's really a it's so much information in in very short form which i thought was really fascinating but you make it very clear because you you have essentially three large sections that you talk about. So you really start that conversation by looking at idols. And then you look at the museum as an institution that stores these idols. And then you look at videos and how videos in the new media sphere, as you just mentioned, can recreate this this sense of iconoclasm. And what does that really mean, particularly in the context of what ISIS does with these videos, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, and so go ahead. Yeah, please. go ahead. No, yeah. no, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, please, you. <laughs> no, so I'm I'm curious to, to to contextualize that further, and we can perhaps start at, as you mentioned in the book with the idols, and what does that really mean in relation to? Because you you do a great job contextualizing it and connecting this particular video as as you mentioned earlier with the antiquity and that history of like, wow, we really need to look at. Some, some really, uh, you know, ancient history and complex history at that about the relationship, particularly in Iraq, with idols and with icons.
0: Yeah. So as you said, right, the, the three chapters progress from idols, which is the term that the spokesman um, in the video uses to d- to identify the objects that are being destroyed. And so the first chapter is one where I'm really kind of probing what ISIS itself claims to be doing or what they claim these objects to be. Um, and I do that um, extensively by using uh, the philosophical thought of the medieval uh, Islamic philosopher um, Abu Nasr al-Farabi, who, though not originally from Iraq, was working, um, sort of flourishing in uh, Baghdad at at the height of sort of medieval uh, Baghdad. And so that's how that chapter sort of centers around Iraq. As I was saying, like each chapter in a way kind of centers around Iraq in different periods, medieval, uh, ancient medieval and modern, though not in that order. And so part of that chapter, right, and if we're talking especially about um, media and theory of media, I I suppose one of the things I would want to say is that I think uh, Al-Farabi is a very important media theorist, and if this book can somehow put Al-Farabi on the map of Valuable media theorists to be reading and thinking about, then I'd be very pleased by that, right so um to think that it's not only obviously uh contemporary thinkers that belong um, in uh, in that group of people that we should be thinking about when we're thinking about the complexity of media and then the second the second chapter called museums partly it's about taking a step back um, sort of widening the scope right and saying well they're saying that they're they're destroying these idols but really what they're destroying are these objects in in museum or not really but in addition right that these are objects in a museum and these are objects that when when they're calling them idols the sort of unesco and other and and museums throughout the world right are saying that this is heritage and, and that these are heritage properly belonging in a museum. And so the second chapter is really about exploring um, what that is all about and doing so by telling a much more complicated story about the different ways these objects have been given meaning um, by being placed in different museums in different parts of the world since the rediscovery in the mid 19th century. Right, and so, um what does it mean for those for these objects to be in a museum in France or in in London or um in Baghdad, and the complicated stories that are um involved in all of that, and I try to really show that these are there are multiple strands that need to be taken into account, and then finally, the chapter on videos, which is to say, well, this is not just about the destruction of these objects or the placement of these objects in a museum, but rather the making of a new image. And that in that chapter, ultimately, that chapter becomes a comparison of the production of images of image destruction along with other images in the Assyrian palace, on the one hand, and today, and social media. And I focus specifically on, on Facebook because that's where I first discovered the, the image myself, um, the video myself, right? And so I, I think it's safe to say that that's, that chapter is the first time that there's been a sustained comparison of, uh, between the structure of the ancient Assyrian palace and the structure of a social media platform. Um, and it was a lot of fun to try and think about those two, um, the, those two things together.
1: Yeah. And it was a lot of fun reading that. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I very much enjoyed the book and I, and as somebody who's done a, a lot of studies in video art, the, the videos I'm, I'm, you know, and I teach media. So I, I was just really fascinated by, you know, you start with talking about futurist F.T. Marinetti, which is shows up in my dissertation work a lot. So I de- definitely, it, it, it spoke to me in many, many ways. Um, So I think it's uh, awesome. And we'll, we'll dive uh, we'll dive deeper into all of these chapters. So, starting with the idols, you you speak a lot about Ibrahim and uh, Nimrod's uh, regime, and and you give us the context of those, um, the the space that they occupied, the political space that they occupied, the differences in their approach to that, and then how that really seems to conflict with what ISIS is doing. So, can you? Talk a little bit more about that in in terms of the context of how you develop that argument.
0: Sure. So first of all, one thing just to say generally, right, is that another line that runs throughout the book is really thinking about the role of images in politics, the relationship between images and politics, and how I think we can hopefully – how we might be able to generate a kind of more sophisticated, a a better – healthier uh understanding of images and how that's important I think for our own contemporary uh political situation and that's why I end ultimately with social media which is of course where today we're encountering more and more images and I and, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that but to go back as you're asking about the first chapter with respect to idols so the video the Isis video begins or the there's a there's a sort of introductory section, and then at, there's one moment where one line from uh, the Quran appears on screen, and it's um, just a couple of words taken from the story of Ibrahim, the young Ibrahim or Abraham, same figure, um, who as a as a lad decided to smash the idols or the the st- st- Sculptures, statues of um, his uh, townsfolk, right, his neighbors. And he's eventually brought before the king, King Nimrud, who in Islamic imagination is identified in a way with all of the kind of major imperial, like those empires of the ancient Near East, right? So the Syrians, the Babylonians. So in a medieval imaginary Nimrud sort of stands in for all of those pre-Islamic empires. And so there's this kind of staged combat um, or, or kind of combat of wits really between the young Ibrahim who destroys these, Images or idols, and actually the word is interchangeable in the text, um, and Nimrud. And what's interesting, and this is where I'm trying to bring out the political ramifications of this material, is that the images are identified as Nimrud's images, and they're identified as belonging to the regime that Nimrud has established, and that they play a role. In sort of maintaining and or and 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 defining um, the ideals and the contours of Nimrud's regime, and so what's really at stake here is it's not just a, a religious issue. If um, today, because of a whole bunch of different you know uh, things that we've inherited since uh, the early modern period. The, we might think of religion as somehow separate from politics, but here the the real question is who should be um, ruling, or who should um, we as human beings serve, and do we serve Nimrod this king um, but who rules by means of these these images, or do we serve God, the creator of everything, according to Ibrahim? Um, who has to be served directly um, without any mediation by uh, by images of, or, of of humanly made images, and so the whole story is really about um, the problem of mediation, the problem of humanly made uh, images that serve this form of mediation, but are therefore because they're humanly made, they're, um, they they are not uh, they're not true. Um, And uh, the question and and these questions of of politics. And I mean, ultimately, like I said, I I bring in Al-Farabi to try to argue that Ibrahim's desire or call for a regime without images. Right. The idea that one could we could live as a political community serving God without any. Um, images as intermediaries is actually um, a mistake. It's a failure to understand the the necessity uh the necessities that go with political life. Um, and this is sort of that I, I use Al-Farabi for saying that, that, that images are necessary to give us some type of shared communal understanding so that we can, ultimately love the law and sort of identify as a political community. And so to say that we want to just um, reject images, destroy images because they're false is in a sense, a kind of attempt to run away from the necessities of politics, the mess of politics, the, the, and, and I'm trying to make an argument in that, in, in that section that um, this is, this is a mistake that one, one needs to, um, one needs to accept the, our situation that, that needs these images. Um, if I may add just one last thing there, just to show how kind of complicated it is, you know, it's one thing to, to say that within the story, this lad, Ibrahim, says, well, we need to have a regime without images. Um, so within the story, I would say that, this, that Ibrahim is, is naive. Um, that doesn't mean that the story of ibrahim smashing the images is naive because the story itself whether in the form of of, a, of just a, a narrative or in its visual depictions and there are visual depictions of of this episode in the quran that's an image the image of smashing images is an image that can serve to orient a political community in the way that farabi is talking about um and it's Turn it's it's proven to be a very very powerful one, and the question is: so what's what's then what kind of an image it is, and what kind of alternative images might we might we choose to have in in orienting our politics? And these are sort of questions that I try to uh, get onto the table in the text.
1: Yeah, and you and you make mention in this chapter, for example, that the spokesman in the video actually inaccurately identifies the images under attack,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is. Well, that's a big deal <laughs> that he just that he just completely misidentified them, and then um, you you start making some connections in relation to uh, looking at some contemporary adversaries. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what does that really mean in relation to tying these two kind of contemporary ideas of iconoclasm with the antiquity that you were just speaking of?
0: Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't make too much of the mis uh identification right like it's it's not so bad i mean i don't i don't think that the spokesman had a phd in archaeology or ancient near eastern studies right and so that he that these the objects are not actually sumerian but they're assyrian and 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 uh somewhat later period stuff too um you know it's okay you know i'm i'm, I'm i i think that the that that that's not the the most important. Um, what's important, right is that he's identifying them I mean, again, from, from his perspective, and I think here we can go with this um, he's identifying them as objects that belong to the civilizations that predated Islam. Um, and in that sense that the they belong to the jahiliya the 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 so-called age of ignorance, uh, which in uh Islamic tradition is sort of what one identifies as the the period um before islam uh, but one of the things i you know i do i think this is might be what you were referring to um towards the end of that chapter, I do tie this to certain Thinkers, especially uh, Sayed Qutb, uh, one of the main uh, intellectual voices of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Egypt in the 20th century, who develops a sort of idea of this this idea of jahiliya or, or or age of ignorance as not simply being a temporal matter, right? Not simply being a historical period prior to the um, the arrival of the prophet, but as a kind of uh, constantly available alternative to Islamic, an Islamic way of life. And so therefore, this kind of uh, age of ignorance is, is still with us today in different forms um, and is from the perspective of someone like Qutb to be, to be fought against. And so what I think is interesting in the video is that these objects that are literally from the historical jahiliyyah, right? The historical period before the advent of of Islam come to also take on a kind of symbolic value as um, objects that are, Idolized, we might even say, right, by modern Jahilia. right. So he told ta- the the spokesperson calls them idols, and at one level that means that presumably he's saying that these were objects that, in antiquity, people worshipped, right? Whether or not that's true, uh, right, but there There's that claim, but on top of that, he's also saying, because that here this is a museum, and these objects are being put in a museum, and they're they're fitting into the way of thinking uh that um undergirds the modern museum. and th- that modern way of thinking, says someone like Kutub, right. Is a, is a form of jahilia. And so these, these objects then take on that, that other uh, meaning as well, right? So I think you get this, this sort of double, doubleness going on.
1: And this really brings us into the next chapter, into the museums. And, and you bring up uh, Carol Duncan's book, Civilizing Rituals. Looking at museums as quintessentially modern sites for, quote, publicly representing beliefs about the order of the world, its past, its present, and the individual's place within it, unquote. And really your question becomes, what is the significance about this video taking place at a museum? So let's unpack that a little bit sure. in relation to perhaps perhaps we can start a little bit more macro and looking at what museums really represent in that uh Greater sphere of being a site of a you know, of, of idols and iconoclasm. Right. So I mean, first
0: of all, I would say that Duncan's point in I mean in a way is actually deeply Al-Farabian, whether or not she's aware of that. Um, in the sense of how these how how these images are uh working to form certain types of political identities. Um, what's What's different, and just to add this element, because I think that this is where things get complicated and difficult for us, right, is that in Al-Farabi's medieval philosophical scheme, he talks about a prophet and that it's the role of the prophet to provide the appropriate images for any particular political community and to orient and and the prophet is able to do this because the prophet is so wise is able to therefore choose the appropriate images to orient that community in a way that the community can flourish. That's a kind of lovely okay. idealized picture very also right. you know top down. Now what what to do with it from our more say democratic perspective, right? And I guess what I'm trying to say is that well Um, For Robbie's point that we need these images in order to hold a political community together remains true if we actually want to be flourishing political communities, but we don't have profits that we can outsource this activity to, right? And so in a way, we become both the the makers and the... um, users or or recipients of of the images and that means that we need to be able to judge between different possibilities right and so the and and so here going to the museum the point of the, the point of developing these kind of multiple uh parallel stories in the story in, in the chapter on museums is to say that well no, duncan is right about how museums function but um, and I don't think I don't think she would disagree with this, uh, but there actually is a multiplicity of ways that museums can produce these types of communal or political identities. Um, uh, there's not just one way. Right. And so the chapter tries to use the, this just as a case study uh, this one set of objects, these one set of of objects that have you know have been dug out of the ground from in Iraq over the last hundred and fifty years or so, um, and see what are the many many different ways that just this one small set of objects have been able to be to be used to produce different kinds of identities or different types of political uh, belongings, um, not only because they're being placed in museums in different parts of the world, right? So obviously one big distinction here is between um, how these images might operate in a museum in Iraq versus in a collection in the Louvre or in the British Museum, right? Um, but it's not only that, first of all, like even between the Louvre and the British Museum, there are differences. Um, I tried also sure. the the, very, the fact that the, the Ottoman Empire gets involved in this at certain points. And so what does it mean for the objects to be in a museum in Istanbul, which is not quite the same as it being in uh, London, but it's also not the same as it being in Mosul or Baghdad. And I also tried to attract the many different positions um, within the relatively short modern history of Iraq itself, right? That's not at all... Uh, just one one story, and so that's really in 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 not very many pages. I'm trying to really get a reader to recognize how um, how wide a range of different possibilities one one can get, and in in a sense, this is. Like mo- most of the book, this is really just as a way of using a case study to get us to think about these issues more generally and get us to become more attuned to how this would work in other places as well, right? It's not only about Iraq. It's certainly not only about ISIS, but it's using this as as a way to think about these phenomena.
1: And so do you really think that this is goes back to this idea of context, like cultural context Geographical context, historical context, and perhaps even personal context with what somebody brings into the museum. As there's like a cartoon depicting, you know, one of the, um, uh, for example, with ISIS coming in, this is my first time in a museum. This was awesome. This idea that there was the first time that they came in and they destroyed it. So how much do you think that these kind of different contexts really play a part in in our relationships or societal relationships with museums across the world? I think uh, a lot. I mean,
0: I think that, I, mean, the, I suppose the, the, the main fundamental point here, right, is that if the first chapter, the, the core takeaway of the first chapter is that if we want to live political lives, we have to accept that images are going to play a role in them. Right, we can't live without uh, images if we're going to um, live political lives, and that, and and I guess the corollary of that is that, with Farabi, I agree that that like, we need to, we we should want to live political lives, um, that our lives are better that way. Um, this the point then of the second chapter, perhaps would could be you know, and it, again, sort of on its own, it's sort of a simple, almost obvious point, but then i try to elaborate it with the actual stuff of uh the case study the point would be that no image has it, a meaning intrinsic to it right so context and uh, the whole i mean Depends on what we mean exactly by context, but sure, if we, we can use the word context to sort of speak broadly, right? That meanings accrue to objects; they're contested, um, uh, and 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 it's a much more complicated thing that we can't. That there is no um, single meaning uh, that can be identified as true to an object and and I suppose the the reason what set me off on this in the second chapter right was that it just as the spokesperson for Isis was saying these objects have a set meaning they are idols right and that they are they are about false worship and therefore they must be destroyed right and that it's set in them well likewise when um you know the director general of unesco is saying that these are heritage right these are you know world heritage or human heritage or iraqi heritage and it's shifted back and forth but that you can that they have a an obvious meaning that is um that's embedded in them right that 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 is natural to them and I'm trying to say in the chapter, right, that that's actually, not, that's actually not the case, right? That it's much more complex than that and that context is always playing a, a role and that we have to become much more um, nuanced in, in, in these things, right? It's not necessarily wrong for us to want to treat them as Iraqi heritage or as human heritage, but those are choices that we make. And in making those choices, we're also um, rejecting other possibilities, right? And I okay. think it's really important to become aware of what choices we're rejecting and why we might be choosing one rather than the other, right? Um, rather, than, rather than treat things as if the choice that we're making is actually not a choice because it's intrinsic to the object itself.
1: Right. And you you move this conversation into perhaps a bit more contextualized, a little bit more contemporary, where you bring in Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. and looking at him as uh, – he's certainly a, a political figure and how he has become part of various different uh, art pieces. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how that relates to your overall argument about – this idea of idols and museums and representation and mediated representation and the power of images and politics.
0: Sure. So in order to give a little bit of context on that, let me take a step back because your listeners might not know so much about the history of Iraq and and, and these things. So sure. um, there are, I mean, I go even before the, the establishment of the state of Iraq, but if we start say in, with the establishment of the state of of Iraq and, in in um, 1929 and the, The situation with King Faisal, who was not from Iraq and sort of was kind of handed Iraq to be his kingdom after um, a failed attempt to be the king of Syria and the French decided to get rid of him. And and so he became available. And so the British were like, all right, well, we'll, why don't we put him in Iraq instead? Um, And Iraq was a very diverse place. And... um, it wasn't entirely clear how you would hold these diverse populations together in a kind of nation state that had never existed in, in this kind of modern sense of a nation state uh, before. And one thing that was kind of you know, more or less true about all of the territory now being ruled by Faisal was that um, these objects were fairly prevalent, right? That you could find these ancient Mesopotamian uh, sculptures uh, throughout this region. And so it made a certain amount of sense to try and attach a kind of new modern Iraqi identity to this ancient uh, material and this ancient heritage and now identified this, right, as Iraq's ancient heritage, which now the modern state is connected to. Um, I should say, by the way, right, that that was not um just universally accepted at the time, first of all, there were um, objections from people who or from Muslims who wanted to put more emphasis on islam um, against this kind of pagan pre-islamic past. but it was also in a way perhaps more more interestingly because less could well, less uh we wouldn't think about it maybe today as much um Arab nationalists. From and this was kind of where Faisal was coming from in his own uh, ideology, Arab nationalists were saying, well, no, like our goal is to kind of create a kind of united Arab uh, identity and these objects might, be available here in Iraq, but they aren't widely available throughout the, the the Arab world, which extends far beyond Iraq. And that, therefore, to focus on these objects would be to sort of separate Iraq out from the project of a more uh, trans Arab identity. Right. And so these are these are the kinds of tensions that I've, I'm I'm trying to bring out in the book to sort of make get us aware about how how complicated these decisions. Are and eventually Faisal, nevertheless, go push pushes forward with the establishment of um, the Iraq Museum, et cetera, and which will house these objects. So that's sort of using the past, the ancient past, in a sort of important but relatively light way. As if if we compare it to then Saddam Hussein years later, who was you know he did everything on a grand scale and he loved using the ancient mesopotamian past and so um, some of the, the some of my favorite images reproduced in the book right and you know the, it's a fairly for for such a short book i mean i think that there're quite a few wonderful images that i um, bring in there that the whole book kind of operates as a kind of um image essay as well some of my favorite images are the ones of Saddam Hussein right Saddam Hussein in placing himself in the guise of an ancient Assyrian king fighting off the lions um which he then also ties to um the war against um Iran in the Iran Iraq war because of the sense that the there was there were kind of parallels sort of Assyria had been attacked in antiquity from uh, peoples from the Iranian plateau, and so they were. So he sort of uses that as a kind of way to sort of say that he's uh, a reincarnation of the ancient Assyrian uh, kings, and he and he does this also with Babylonians and 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 others, Um, and so he makes it entirely his own. Um, He puts a lot of money into excavations and into museums and rebuilding museums and, um, you know, really a patron of of this material, but always with his own twist, always with a stamp, right? So it's always, uh, I mean, when he rebuilt parts of Babylon, he rebuilt walls and had bricks stamped with, in cuneiform, uh, statements of of talking uh, that mention Saddam Hussein, like the great king Saddam Hussein, just as just in the same way as the um, Babylonian kings used to do, right? And so he really um, muddies or or the the boundary between history or antiquity and the contemporary situation. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, that's. I mean, it's it is fascinating that you bring him in. Uh, and and there are these really powerful, wonderful images throughout your um, your book, which are which really, for those of us who are who may not be familiar with some of these pieces, it it definitely helps kind of visually contextualize, especially because you are talking about <laughs> the images, right? So I think that's great. And as we move into chapter three, where you're really looking at, you know, recording a destructive act. The video itself becomes a kind of replacement image. Exactly. So it's you know the destruction of images, as you mentioned, the book then becomes part of image production, which is like a really loaded statement in terms of how you know there's a lot there and and how we can look at that. So uh, let's let's talk about that in relation to the video and what that really means. In when we're looking at the museum institution and we're looking at idols, and this, uh, and, and of course, this particular video that came out um, from ISIS in 2015.
0: Right. So, I mean, there's a lot to say there. First of all, this idea that um, image destruction doesn't actually very often just exist on its own, but is actually um, about or um, involved in the production of of new images is, I think, very important, and it's not, and it's by no means limited to the case as I already mentioned of the Assyrian palace relief that shows the three men with sledgehammers or the ISIS video. This is there's a long tradition, and you know, an early draft of the book included a lot more material, which I then initially cut because I just it just started going. Um, uh going too far but you know i think people might be familiar with images from the protestant reformation very often like you you get a book on protestant iconoclasm for example right and the book will have a bunch of these images and they'll present the images as if they are depictions of the iconoclasm just sort of you know um, evidence of the iconoclasm without really thinking about the fact that they them that that these are images right themselves uh, right. of the iconoclasm and sort of not and, and so I really wanted to bring that home and really think about what does it mean to um, to make these images to, because first of all it 's a sign right that that it 's not actually for all that the rhetoric might be about escaping images it 's never really about escaping images it 's always about what I would call regime change, replacing one set of images with a a new set of images. And so that's one point. Another point, which is important, and this is true both for the Assyrian palace reliefs and for the ISIS videos, right, is that these images of image destruction don't exist alone. They often are part of a larger set of images um, so the the, I, the image of iconoclasm is only one of, of a whole set of images. That's in the case of the Assyrian palace relief. I talk about how the that one um, part with the three men with the, with the sledgehammers, right, is only a small segment of a much larger uh, panel and then a much larger relief program within the palace room, right? And so you have to think about what work, that image is doing, what political work that image is doing in relationship to the other images um, on the wall. And of course, that's also the case with ISIS, right? So the book is focused on the video of iconoclasm. But as we all know, around the same time that the video, this video came out in 2015, the internet was being flooded with other um, Videos, many probably more familiar to um, to a wider group of people because um, more gruesome, right? These images of executions, for example. Um, but then there were, also, there were also videos of the healthcare network that ISIS was setting up, and these types of things, right? There's a whole range of different videos that were being produced, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is, in a sense, how ISIS like the Assyrian palace was here producing a set of images to kind of decorate their own palace but this time around rather than it being a physical palace right with physical walls like at Khorsabad or these other uh ancient sites it was a virtual palace that exists you know nowhere in particular but rather everywhere that um we look at our screens right Um, Right. And so one of the things that I wanted to think about was what's at stake in that shift? What's at stake in the, the palace walls, so to speak, moving to the, to our screens. What I mean, it's no longer called Facebook, no longer calls it your wall. Right. But for those of us who were on Facebook early enough, like it used to be called one's one's you posted on one's wall. Right. And so even the language there is reminiscent. And so um, that's the main um, comparison. And, and, but I also, I, I tried to develop an argument for how things are, it's not just, it's, it's, it's not just the same, you know, but on, on the, on the internet, but rather that there are actually significant differences that we should become aware of in terms of how the platform, right. Uh, affects the political power of images.
1: Yeah. And it certainly does the platform. When we think about you're currently, the te- the technological platforms available to us it's it's huge, and you specifically also talk about gaming
0: mm-hmm.
1: and video games, and as you mentioned earlier, this idea that old images are not erased, they're recycled, which you mention in the book, and that's uh, and I think that that's that I agree that that's an important point to make, and then you go on and, and really talk about how ISIS videos imitate video games that are themselves imitations of the real world. Exactly. So you get into this hyper real, very kind of postmodern uh viewpoint of images.
0: Yeah, so the so I talk about the video games. I mean the video game part was a was a fun part to to write. I originally tried to play some of these first person shooter video games that people had all I, I wasn't the first to recognize that there were some types of formal similarities between uh, ISIS videos and first-person shooter video games. I'm I'm not a gamer. I tried my best. I actually used research funds to buy myself a, um, a PlayStation and a copy of Call of Duty, and I couldn't get past the first board, the, the first thing. <laughs>
1: Uh, Not all of us are gamers. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I'm with you on that. I've 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 tried sometimes too. Yeah. But um,
0: as it happens, at the time, I had a student I was teaching at the University of Chicago at the time, and I had a student in my uh, introductory humanities course who um, was a kind of professional video game player. Who you know, one of these people that plays online and gets paid for the people pay to just watch him play first person shooter video games. And so I took some of more of my research funds and I hired him to play to watch these ISIS videos. I was, I was wondering if I needed to get him to re- sign a release to that. I was not like, if he ended up joining ISIS, I was not going to be responsible, but, um,
1: Wow. Yeah. You know, <laughs> well, that's a tough question. Yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> yeah. I didn't actually, you know, I, I didn't actually bother to bring it to the council's office at the university of Chicago. Cause I had, I had a, I had a fear that if I if mentioned it to them, right, that they would have not allowed me to hire the student to do this work. But, yeah. um, Anyway, he was, I mean, he was thrilled. Like basically the job was watch these videos that I, you know, downloaded off the internet and I mean side side point, this is I'm, I'm now banned from YouTube because they because I was downloading these videos and you know, I wrote to them and I said, I'm s I'm I'm an academic. I was doing this for scholarship and they told me we don't care. Oh
1: wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. So they were basically maybe seeing that you were attempting to join ISIS. Yeah or something like that. Right? Wow. So like, Just some sort big, of yeah, cool. yeah. I so got that, it. <laughs> I mean still today,
0: like I cannot get down to like I can only I can't have You know, a YouTube account. Um, Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, so I told him to watch these videos and then to identify places in the video games that he knew so well that were similar and to record his play. And he made these wonderful little, like, a clip of one, you know, and clip of the other, right? And, um, but, so that was that was fun, but for me, the question that I was trying to explore there was, what does it mean to want to inhabit a video game, right? Because the idea was that the caliphate was being advertised as if, you know, as if it were a video game, as as if you could actually live in the video game, right? And that, that led me to some interesting op- in, uh, thoughts about what it means to be playing a game, right, where you're still outside the game versus entering into the game, which, which is, frankly, you're no longer playing it. You're actually being played. And, the, and so this was, a, this was a fun way for me also to think about uh, parallels uh, between um, gameplay, programming of the game, the, the role of judgment Involved and how we don't actually how 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 our ultimate goals are set for us in a game and why we, why that might be appealing and but also I think problematic that we want to uh, outsource responsibility for our ultimate goals um, and and how there might even be some parallels between all of that and certain certain ideas about divine law. This gets much more complicated, and so anyway, this was this was an area that I was exploring uh, with respect to the games. But if I may, just the the at this point, I would say maybe even more important was the thinking about social media and algorithms, and. I don't talk, I don't use a term in the book. I wish I had. I, I only thought about it after. But I would now say that the final section of that third chapter is about what I would now call algorithmic iconoclasm. And I'm just trying to explain a little bit what I have in mind, right? So if iconoclasm is ultimately about the desire to eradicate those images that we don't want to have around uh, that that point to a kind of political orientation that we don't want that we want to reject right and we want to somehow inhabit a space free of being reminded of that alternate political uh, possibility well Every time we click on Facebook or on Twitter, right? And every every time we click, the algorithms get to know us better. And as their algorithms get to know us better, they know what we want to see. And they know what we don't want to see. And they give us what we want to see. And they keep us from seeing what we don't want to see. And so what this actually means is that every time we click, we're engaged in a kind of iconoclasm in that we are purifying our visual world or our visual realm from the images that we don't want to see, right? And I think we all know how devastating the political consequences of that can be uh, because unlike... In the case, say, of that ideal situation with Al- of farabi of the Prophet producing images for a unified polity, um, these days, you know, and you know, here obviously we you know we we all know about this when we talk about echo chambers and such. Um, rather than images being used to produce a unified polity, right? We're clicking our way into these um, separate. Realms and separate separate worlds, even though at least in term at, at the level of citizenship, right? We are supposed to be all members of the same polity, right? If we, and I'm trying to, you know, obviously here, I'm trying to connect this to some of the, some of the issues that say I, I'm, I'm an American. We in the United States are, are facing right now. Um, and so, you know, the, even to take, an, to take an image from the Capitol riot from on January 6th, right, we all saw many images circulate around that time. But, and this goes back to also the issue of context, the meaning of the images that circulated for us almost certainly right, were um, limited. By the um, by, what the algorithms know about us and know what they want, right? And so, even the, the same image, say the f- flying of the flag, uh, the Confederate flag in the in the Senate, probably you know was presented. Even if we saw the same image, even if I saw the same image as some as like the friends of the person flying that that flag in in the Capitol, um, I saw it contextualized in a certain way that it meant one thing. Um, Whereas this, a, a, another group would have see, either not seen it at all or seen it, you know, contextualized to mean something completely different. And that's, um, that's the product of this type of uh, algorithmic iconoclasm that I would now call. That I, and I think we have to, we have to become very, uh, I think we should become concerned about this and start thinking about the ramifications of it.
1: Yeah, that's a really fascinating I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was gonna be my next question. Okay. <laughs> was looking at the uh, you know, the algorithm and I was having a conversation just yesterday where, you know, you're you're on Instagram and if you depending on how long you just watch a video and ad, they're counting that. Yeah. You don't even need to like Touch it, right? You don't have to touch your screen, but they know that you have paused for X amount of seconds, or microseconds, so they will, yeah, or microseconds. Right? Exactly. So, and I and I even tell my students, I'm like, there are things that you can do to, you know, keep the algorithm. Dumb because it doesn't start off smart. The more that we feed it, the smarter it gets exactly in relation to what it's going to give us or whatnot. So uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think many of us are aware that we're like, nope. So I personally do not click on the ads. I attempt right. to just kind of keep going, but ever so often it does it get it gets all of us because <laughs> it might be yep. like, wow, I actually need that, right? So, and and that's what they're counting on, they're counting on that engagement. I think it's really fascinating that you're talking about this uh, notion of iconoclism online and in this digital platform arena of us creating our own, you know, curating our own images in a way that, as you mentioned, in a political sphere is dangerous because then you create this echo chamber of just the same content and the same, which is problematic, right? This is where we start getting into kind of a, this idea of um, it—it's it, cognitive dissonance in yeah. a way.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I think that if we're going to live in the same polity with other people, then we need to be living in the same reality as uh, as those people. And so, you know, like you were saying with the, with the ads, right? Well, I think very often we think about this just in purely capitalist type sense, right? Oh, it's just about selling stuff, and and it's great, you know. I if I, I do actually. I, I would prefer to see ads about, you know, stylish jeans rather than ads about, you know, I, I, whatever. Right. Cause it's more relevant to me. And so why not see those? Um, but it's obviously not just about commerce. It is also having an effect on how we, um, how we end up seeing the world, the, f- the fact that we're more and more we're seeing the world through our social media, and it, it's the way that we're getting access to our world. It really does make a big difference. And the, I mean, the problem I think is that there is a deep-seated human desire for our world to look the way that we want it to look. Right. So it's when you say that you you can try and you try and tell your students to, to sh, you know shut off or make, make make the algorithms dumb. I mean the problem with that is that there's there are good reasons why we don't want them to be dumb, right? The the, the, the smarter the algorithm is, the the more satisfied we can become with the world as we as we see it. And we want to be living in a world that satisfies us. I think that there's a natural It's
1: convenience. convenience yeah. It's convenience
0: yes. or or it speaks to a kind of right like oh my God, it's so wonderful that everybody agrees with me. And whenever I see uh, the articulation of an idea that I don't disagree with, it's always presented as like absurd and ridiculous and ironically or something like this, right? It's never, I never actually have to see it as something that I might have to contemplate or contend with or consider as a possibility, even if I'm not going to agree with it myself, but at least maybe even something that might be a legitimate alternative that I can share a country with if a person who, who holds that view, I don't even have to hear about the view. It's great. Right. Like I live in this world where everybody agrees with me such that, and and that's incredibly appealing, but it's incredibly uh, dangerous if we're going to continue to live, you know, as as political in political groups, because it, it just sends us into the fantasy world.
1: Yeah, I think that that to me, it just reminds me of of Plato's allegory of a cave. Yes, it <laughs> does. And Just how easy it is to remain looking at shadows mm-hmm. rather than being outside of the cave. Right. And really dealing with things that um, you don't have complete control of, such as opinions that you don't agree with. Yeah. Or ideas that you don't agree with.
0: Right. And you know, and, and maybe this is you have this in mind, right? There is a reason why, in the the coda of the book, right, I finally do bring in the figure of Socrates, who, in in a sense, maybe was was lurking uh, throughout the book in certain in certain ways, and, and Socrates finally does make a cameo uh, in the in, in the final section.
1: Yes. And I, and I, and I really appreciate how you do bring these, uh, you know, scholars and these philosophers and these ideas that kind of span many, many <laughs> centuries <laughs> that, uh, you know, to, to kind of make your, your argument, which is very robust. So definitely, um, this is, you know, for, I, for such a short form book, there's so much in here and the images and everything really fascinating. Uh, and, um, I'm, I'm, you know, very interested to see what what else you're going to be working on. Are you currently working on uh, anything else? Kind of as we as we wrap up, or are you just inundated with teaching, as many of us are? What's uh, what's what What are you currently doing, Aaron? Right.
0: So well, thanks for asking. So the truth is, once I finish this book, even though it is incredibly short, as you said, it it does pack a lot in, and uh, ranging over two thousand five hundred years in many many disciplines and. Trying to write about all of this stuff in a way that is accessible to really anyone, not assuming any expert knowledge whatsoever, because I knew I was playing between so many different expertise groups I wanted to write a book that was available that would be understandable and enjoyable to read to to that wide range so anyway, there, a lot of work went into this short book, and so for for a while I kind of just. Took a step back, and I wasn't really even thinking about a next project. And uh, so, I've been doing a lot of teaching, and I teach a wide range of humanities courses here in Berlin. And one of the things that I've been thinking about at that level, so not so much scholarship, but but I've come to really care about, is to think about how to how to expand uh, the standard humanities curricula in um, more um, global ways. And in a sense, this book um, was partly an attempt of trying to bring um, the, at least the Middle East and certain uh, traditions and European political philosophy uh, into inter-conver- conversation. And so I've been thinking about that, but, but that's more at a pedagogical level. Um, when I was a freshman, no, not freshman, when I was a sophomore, I transferred to the university of Chicago and I had the good fortune of taking a class with David green, uh, on Herodotus. Uh, green was the, was one of the translators of Herodotus and a short Irish man, very old at the time. And he spoke to us as if Herodotus was his, you know, old an old friend of his. Anyway. Um, what's the point here? I, I wrote a research, you know, I wrote a seminar paper for that class when I was a sophomore in college, and I've been sort of working on it since then. And so, uh, I don't, 20 years later or so, I'm I'm thinking that I might want to finally get to work on it seriously and turn it into a book on Herodotus and uh, cultural diversity um, and universal empire and the tension between those two. So, we'll see if that... Uh, that happens, but that's at least a possibility on on the horizon.
1: That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, pedagogical goals are also great goals to have. We all have those of us who teach full time, (laughs) you know, we have to balance these two things. and, And after, as you mentioned, writing, a book with so much, there's just chock full of so many different ideas. Uh, sometimes we, you know, we, it, taking a break from that is, is good as well. <laughs> so yeah, it
0: was necessary, but, it, yeah, but it was it'll it yeah. be fun to get to think, the creative work of, of writing again, though. I love to, te- I love teaching and and I've had wonderful opportunities of, of having um, a, having to be forced to learn lots of new things over the last couple of years at my position here in Berlin. And so that's been also incredibly uh, stimulating intellectually.
1: That's awesome. That's great. Thank you again for joining us, Aaron. Um, Thank you for all of our listeners for tuning in today. Until next time, cheers, everyone.
0: Thanks, Marcy.